In this series of podcasts, we discuss the transforming work of God, who is uncreated being, upon our souls as limited, created being. We discover how His Word reveals the truth of the union of His Spirit with our spirit through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This transformation of our lives is not just about a change from bad to good. It's about a shift from natural to spiritual, from old creation to new creation. Well, here we are again for another episode uh, in the Ten Commandments series. Today we're talking about the Ninth Commandment, and this comes from Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. Now, Paul, before we talked about don't kill as being the shortest verse in the Bible, but if we make this don't lie, doesn't that then become the shortest verse in the Bible? Okay, so you won that round. <laughs> yes, you're right, don't lie. Yeah. I thought I'd beaten you by saying <laughs> don't kill was shorter than don't steal, but don't lie. So that's, that's pretty okay. succinct, isn't it? Yeah, I'll, I'll give that to you. Yeah. We talked about the first four of the Ten Commandments <laughs> being about our relationship with God and then final six being our relationship with other people. Mm-hmm. This is in the final six, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, but, Second last of the final six. Yeah, but does this commandment only deal with what we say about other people or does it include what we say about God as well? Yeah, bearing false witness against yeah. your neighbour. Y- yes. Yeah, well, it includes God because when we talk about false witness, you also have to think about what is a true witness and God wants there to be a true witness of himself in the earth. So when we discuss bearing false witness, as I said, it's important that we discuss true witness. And we're going to be doing a lot of that today. And there are two major fields of bearing witness, either false or true. And one of them is in the field of our relationship with each other, which is what you just said regarding against your neighbour. And that's managing the truth regarding another person. And the other is with God, because God is also our neighbour, because he's also a person. And all of this deals with the destructive power that we can exert against another person because of misrepresentation or lying. So it's all relevant. Mm. When I say we manage the truth, it's not like we kind of take the truth and work on it and do all sorts of stuff. We're responsible for what we say about another person. That's what I mean by manage the truth, which means that there can be something that is true about another person, but the best management of that is we don't say it because it's not necessary to have to say that about that person. Mm. So we're talking about management of truth, and that is quite a responsibility. It involves discretion and consideration for the other person. It's relational, isn't it? Right, yeah, and it's not just blurting out the truth. That's right. Simply because it's true, because the truth can kill if it's used in the wrong circumstances. Absolutely, no, that's it. So when we've got this field of managing the truth regarding God and our relationship with God, because it's all about relationships. This has to do with the more absolute reality of the truth of who God is. And that's a very paramount thing in its meaning as to what truth itself actually is. It's not only dealing with who God is, but with who we are and what is life truly about. We have to go to that extent today, rather than just what opinion we've got about God or what we say about him, It is who is God. He is the one that actually is truth. And so that's something that we're going to reach out towards today. It will deal with the truth of why we exist and the nature of life and being. Truth is what is. It's interesting when you look at the Greek word for truth in the Bible, the word is alethanosin. Any word that starts with A is usually a negative word. When I say negative, A means not. Alethanos means not concealed. So the truth is what is. The truth is not concealed. It is what is revealed. In fact, when you look at the definition of it, in the Strong's Concordance, which is a good book to have if you want to know the meaning of the Greek words in the Bible, it says, that which has not only the name and resemblance, but the real nature, 
corresponding to the name, in every respect corresponding to the idea signified by the name, real, true, genuine. In other words, it is what it is. It is opposite to what is false or imagined and therefore misrepresented. That's an interesting word, interesting word, but it's an interesting concept that truth is staring at you in your face. But if it's concealed, you don't know what it is. But when it's revealed, you can see it, then you're accountable for what you do about it. Mm. Because it's very popular today for people to say, well, the truth is relative. Your truth, it might be different from my truth. But what we're talking about here is absolute truth because it's really the equivalent of what reality is. Reality, right. exactly. And there aren't multiple realities. There's just one reality that, and in the world that we all live in, yeah. which means there's one truth, and it's just whether that's been revealed to us or not. That's true. And, and that's when we look at absolutes. That's when we're looking at God, the nature of being, the nature of truth itself. Relative truths exist in the field of other observations. You say, this is true. Yeah, but in another circumstance, it might be slightly different because it's what you observe. Mm. But when, when you're talking about the absolute truth of the nature of truth itself and existence, there is an absolute truth that comes from, from God. That's what right. we're going to be chasing today. And so that's revealed from that's God. That's revealed from God. Right, in his word, in the creation, yeah. um, in the things that he does. Yep, his right. actions. And, and that's self-revealing, which is the best way to use the definition of what I said truth was. It, it is what is revealed. And that's more active, isn't it? Mm. I mean, yeah, when I was saying to you about the relative this and the relative that, that is more about what is observed. Mm. But then there is, behind that is what is revealed, which we're talking about where does it all come from? Mm. The source of truth. So if God, God is truth, he's the source of yeah, truth. Well, yeah, that's very, that's very good because let's say that now, that it all starts with God, everything. And that's why we're doing this series. Otherwise, if it didn't, no point in doing the Ten Commandments because we're making something up. So that's called sometimes the prevenient grace of God. In other words, God acts first. God acts upon us, God has acted upon us first. God has acted upon the creation. It's not like we dreamed it up. God acted and then it becomes revealed to us. Now atheists would say, no, you thought God up. It was all here and you had to think of how God is so you thought up a God. Now I'll say no to that. He thought us up. We didn't think him up. You can say to, you, to an atheist about the Big Bang, I heard a very interesting little debate go on. Somebody said, in the beginning there was nothing, and then it exploded. You've heard that yeah. statement, right? Then an atheist says, well, you know, I don't like to see things that way. But this was in real time. It was on Q&A with Richard Dawkins, you know, and Tony mm. Jones, and they were talking about creation and so on. I remember that. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And then uh, Richard Dawkins said, there's no such thing as nothing. Nothing is antimatter. And then the other, on the panel, there was a theologian then, and there were other journalists and science, well, people of, of science, scientific credibility. And they said, but what do you mean that nothing is not nothing? He said, no, nothing is not nothing. Nothing is something. And then the audience started to laugh mm. and he got peed. And Richard Dawkins said, what are you all laughing at? And they, they started to try and stop laughing. There were a few giggles. And then one of the theologians said, well, what we're all laughing at, Richard, is that we are all here arguing and debating about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and then, it got, then they cracked up. But you can see how tortured the thinking has to be to try and say something because you want it to be like that. Yeah. Well, if you try to take God out of the equation altogether, you really have to do some mental gymnastics to um, come up with an explanation for how everything is. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there's the, there's the principle of contingency, a philosophical axiom, which is this is the absolute reality, is that one thing leads to another. You've got to be able to track where something came from. You can't come to the end and say, oh, well, there was nothing there. And then all of a sudden something appeared. Well, you can 
If you say, then there must be somebody who made that appear. Mm. And that's contingency. Everything is contingent upon something, and that is God. And that's why we have faith. It'd be far more useful right now, I think, Scott, to deal firstly with our relationship with one another. That's kind of more apparent in our daily interactions in the familiar world of our day-to-day lives. And if we can talk about that, it gives us some more tangible examples to work with about bearing false witness against our neighbour. I do want to get to the God part. In fact, that's where we're heading. And anyway, God is also our neighbour, being a person. But the fear of our relationship with the truth of who God is, is, as we've just seen, so much more profound and philosophical regarding the essential nature of truth than any other aspect of truth. So can we do that last? Yeah, that's, that's fine. Uh, we did talk a little bit about science. Um, and what do you think about scientific truth? Because wouldn't that seem to be an honest representation of what is? Scientists take great pride in considering themselves to be objective and viewing evidence through an objective lens. But how do we view scientific truth? Well, I've got to give it to science. I do love science, and I believe genuine scientists in, in the in venturing into inquiry, you know, in searching and, and in pursuit, in the inquiry of truth, I believe in a very humble way they accept the fact that what they see now is only partially what's been revealed, what they can see, and because they might be able to see it even more clearly when they get better instrumentation, technology or whatever. That's a good sort of an approach. It's continually finding it can observe what is more accurately than it used to. You look at the the galaxies, the laws of motion. Sir Isaac Newton did some brilliant work. You know, he was coming from what Keppel and Copernicus had said about the Earth not being the centre of the universe, you know, the heliocentric, the the sun was the centre of our, at least of our galaxy. By doing that, he was able to plot incredibly accurately things like time and mass and distance, and you could use his mathematics to get to the moon. Everything was solid enough and observable enough and accurate enough to calculate something like sending somebody to the moon. Then Einstein came along, and this is where relativity comes into it, And he said, yeah, that's okay, Mr. Newton, Sir Isaac, that's right. But when you get to beyond that time frame that you're working with and the mass frame and the distance frame, yes, it all works. But if you were actually working, moving at the speed of light, all of those things would change. I know you're not going to be traveling at the speed of light, so we'll use your calculations. However, I've observed that everything is relative to the reference point from where you observe it. Now that was big. So that's science. It's not that Newton was wrong, it's just that it wasn't totally complete. But what I like about that sort of process is truth does depend on where you see it from. It's a matter of perspective Perspective. And I I believe even in in Christianity, where do we see the truth from? We can see it from our own opinion of how we would like God to be. Mm. And so we have this truth and we say, but it's written in the Bible. Yeah, but where are you coming from? Oh, look, I said we weren't going to talk about (laughs) that. Because that's when we have to wait for the Holy Spirit to reveal that. So look, sorry, I'm not going to talk about that. Let me just pick up on one little tale there, which was matter of perspective. So two people can see the same event and describe it slightly different ways. Yeah. And we do see that in the Gospels, like with, with different, with events that happen in the Gospels and some of them describe them slightly differently. Yes. Like there was, you know, one angel or there was, you know, two people instead of one or whatever. That's right. And all of those kind of seeming inconsistencies can be resolved by just realising that they were different observers to the same event, describing in their own words. That's excellent. And they would have had an emphasis, or at least they would have been looking for something and seen that and observed it and thought the other thing wasn't as relevant. That's right. That's they the don't describe absolute, nobody describes absolutely that's, that's, everything that they see that's good. Or, or happens in a scene, do they? That's they it. just pick out that's the it. things that made an impression on them. Which is very interesting because... And I do have to get back to faith here again. You and I both love searching for truth in the Bible. 
Now, when you are searching for something, you, you get a sense of, of something about the nature of God, and you say, I'm going to track that down, and you start to search for it. You find that you go down through different layers that you have never gone down before because you think there is something here, but I can't see it. Maybe it's not there. Mm. And then something in you says, well, just trust it and, and believe it and put it to God and see if he gives you an answer. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. That's called faith, right? Mm. That's all. Seek and you'll find. Ask God and he will reveal it in his time. But science uses that same framework now. You know, the, the Hadron Collider, they look at light waves and they say, does light move in wave motion or in particle motion. And so they've tried to split light coming through certain slits and they found that all of a sudden it changes from seemingly wave motion into particle motion and then the different particles all of a sudden can resonate. They can isolate a particle and say this particle or photon is resonating at a certain kind of frequency and a thousand kilometres away the other part, it's somehow separated and it's resonating at the same time, doing exactly the same. How can this thing be in two places at once? Now, that was the mathematics, but nobody could actually observe it properly. They said, we're going to have to find it. So they built this thing, the Hadron Collider, which is 27 kilometres, the biggest machine in the world. And they said, we know this is true, but we can't observe it. And you know what faith is? The evidence of things not seen. That's what the Bible says. So scientists use the same framework of reference for the inquiry into truth as we do. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting, yeah. So then they found it because they built this collider and they waited and waited and all of a sudden, bing, this little flash of light, we saw it. It got revealed, mm. but they had to have faith and assume that it was there first. Mm. I find that fascinating. Yeah, well, a lot of the early scientists, in fact, most of them were believers in God. And the reason they got into science was because they believed that God created everything. And if that was the case, creation would be worth investigating. Okay. It was just random chaos. Yeah. It was less interesting. <laughs> That's you know? true. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's good. So Newton and all those guys were all uh, believers. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. right. Mm. So, Paul, I did want to ask you the same question I ask you every episode, which is how does this commandment relate to the one before it? All right. Well, as again, it always has to do with relationships with one another. So the best way to link them, say this is commandment nine, to link it to commandment eight, start with the relational failure that occurs. Because if you fail in commandment five, there's going to be a problem in commandment six. You've got to go back and have a look at where, where did you fail. With the failure that occurs in commandment eight, that was about devaluing another person's possessions and that other person's entitlement to what they own, the worth of what they've done in their hard work and everything. And that was a devalue of something that belonged to another person. But commandment nine is about devaluing another person's name and reputation and honour, which is devaluing their essential being or nature, not just their entitlement to things. That is quite a leap, but that's the link of the devaluing of a person. Because in the last chapter we saw the stealing reflected the lack of worth that a thief shows for his and other people's productivity and ownership of things a lack of regard for a relationship with another person. The thief becomes the taker and can't give. And if they did appear to be giving, it was with some kind of an angle, a trade for their own advantage. And that loss of respect for somebody's goods now leads to the loss of respect for somebody's name. So in this area of somebody's name, like with you and me, I know you, I know your name, I'm obliged, it's not only obliged, I am moved <laughs> to protect and care for your good name and reputation, all right? That is something that I see as, as a principle of, of truth and, and, and life and reality and care and love. Bearing false witness sets the stage for the abuse of power in destroying another person's character and standing in the community, and that's death. Mm. And we see a lot of that happening in social media too, don't we? It's just oh, rampant. Yeah, everywhere. But people don't really care about other people's uh, reputations. 
It's a weapon. And, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We talked last time, we discussed the question, when is a thief not a thief? And we also talked about the transformational nature of a thief moving from stealing to giving. Is there a New Testament scripture which talks about when is a liar not a liar? And can you also talk more about the transformational nature of this commandment? Yeah, well, there's a process of transformation. We went to the book of Ephesians chapter 4 about the thief not being a thief or let him steal no more, but let him work and, and become productive, then become a giver. In the same chapter, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's talking about the inner working of God within us, you know, the, the working of the Spirit. And he's saying, when the Spirit of God works in you, there will be these things from the nature of God within, virtues that will need to be expressed outward in your life to transform you from doing things from your own earthly perspective of self-advantage to a godly perspective of relational integrity and care and love. So this one here in Ephesians chapter 4, reading it in a, in a modern translation, no more lies, no more pretense, speak truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other. There's the relational thing. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. That is key. I'll keep reading. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing corrupt or twisted come out of your mouth. Say only what helps each word to be a gift. That middle part, when you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. That becomes key. We'll see that later on because that's a consequence mm. of what happens. Bearing false witness doesn't only involve saying things that are false. And that's one thing we've got to look at it because it's talking about let nothing twisted come out of your mouth. It involves also saying true things about a person that are unnecessary. So there could be something true, but it's unnecessary. You're twisting the uh, agenda there. And it also involves not acknowledging the good thing about another person. That's truth. I think people should be acknowledged for good things that they've done. God is the only person, though, who knows everything about us, right? So we can say, oh, well, I think I know what they're like and say something, but we don't know. In fact, I don't think we even know what's going on in our own hearts no, a lot of the time. But, but God does know everything about everybody. And he covers us in his love. I mean, he could say, I know what you're like. I think I'm just going to tell everybody. He doesn't do that. If he was going to let everybody know everything about us today in full sight of everyone, all the little inner self-centered thoughts, our desires, our opinions, life would be very embarrassing. Well, there'd be no relationships anywhere, would there? Because nobody <laughs> would have any friends. And... That's true. That's true. It's, that's true. That's it. I mean, we'd run away in shame. And that's the problem. We'd cover up, which people do. So he covers us with the love. And that's different to covering yourself with shame because that's what happens when people talk about you. But there will come a time when all the thoughts of the hearts will be made manifest before everybody and that's called Judgment Day. Meanwhile, God's mercy is long-suffering and this is all accounted for in the Bible. It's articulated very clearly that his long-suffering covers us in his love, withholding final judgment in order to give us opportunity to repent and change. Because that's what the journey is about. He doesn't say, oh, I think I've got a flawed human here. I thought I made them all perfect. No, sorry, Lord, you made us all human, flawed. Yes, you're right. Okay, well, starting with you, I can see real potential there. Let's try and get you there. So I'm not going to tell everybody what you like. <laughs> I'm going to give you opportunity to change, to start to see things for yourself, acknowledge them, and then hopefully want to be the best person you can be that I've created you to be. So that's what the Bible says, judge nothing before the time. And in other words, don't go bearing false witness. Don't make your big opinions and judgments. You could be wrong. In the meantime, he tells us he will, in due course, bring everything to light, the hidden things of darkness, and reveal the counsels of the hearts. That's at the end. But there will be, from time to time, he will let certain things come out. He doesn't always design the strategy to expose somebody. 
he allows them to become so flagrantly careless and uncaring in their life that they expose themselves by going beyond what you can really effectively hide. Mm. I mean, look at the look what's been happening recently in the exposure of people with immorality and, and, and corruption. You think, did God expose that? Well, yes, he did. But what he did was he allowed that to expose itself because the person was so deceived that they thought they could get away with it. Mm. And it comes out in the headlines, it comes out on cable TV. And it's, it's really big these days. There's oh, a yeah. lot of stuff coming out. And I believe God is, he is light. So he allows that to be exposed. What does that do though? You see, that can put caution into people. I had better change my ways. I mean, these are people even looking at what's been exposed. They could say, well, I could have come closer getting dumped for that. That's right. And if somebody who's that powerful can get it, can't get away with it, why yeah, do I think I can? That's right. So that's a deterrent. It's a wake-up call. And also for the person that got exposed, they can, whatever happens, or they go to jail or if they have made a public shame, that's, and I've seen that happen. I've read books about guys that have gone to jail and say, I found God in this experience. Well, there's usually not much else they can do other than seek meaning in life and, and, and a sense of forgiveness as well for, for yeah. what they've done. And usually these crimes that they've done are, are quite damaging, aren't they, to, to a lot of people. Yeah. And, and so the sense of shame is immense That's for right. these people. And so, as you said, you know, they've, they've, probably, they've destroyed all their relationships. There's nothing yeah. left. They used to be very powerful and able to wield power and they abuse that and all of that's now gone. And that's been stripped away. So they they can't, they've got nothing to hide behind anymore and they're just left with themselves as they really are. Yeah, big wake up call. That's right. I think God brings all of us from time to time in that position where, you know, he he wants us to to strip away a lot of that stuff so that we're in a place to seek him. Well, that's true, and that's, you're right, because that is in the sense of God acting upon us in those things. And that's why I see people say, oh, well, God judged nothing before the time. Has God stopped judging? No, I believe God is always in the arena of judgment, but I call it redemptive judgment. Because it's out there to pull us into the light. Not It has a purpose. Yeah, not to leave us in the dark. It has a purpose, yeah. Yeah, that's good. There is a certain kind of judging that, that I have seen that occurs, and I've been in the situation where I have invited people to judge one another. You think, well, you just said you can't. But when people are offended with one another because they've perceived some kind of an offensive motive of something that was done to them by another person, and they bottle it up and they've got hurt feelings, they don't know what to do with it. And people have come to me and they've said, this is what this person has done. This is what they're like. They've done me harm. And I'm not supposed to judge them. And I say, you know what you need to do? For the sake of being able to explain to somebody how you felt about being offended, there needs to be a face-to-face disclosure. That's not accusation or bearing false witness as long as it's part of a process of reconciliation. Like you come and say, look, this is what I believe you've done. It might sound like an accusation. I I advise the other person, listen to them, say this. What they've perceived has hurt their feelings. This gives you an opportunity to explain that, hey, sorry, that's not what I meant. Now, you can say, oh, they're judging one another. But I think this is an honest kind of a, a disclosure rather than bearing false witness. Well, it's correcting an untruth in somebody else. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. So they can even have a negative opinion and say, look, this is the way you do this, I don't like it. The person can give an explanation. All of a sudden the veil's lifted from the person's eyes and they say, oh, really, I didn't realise you were vulnerable in that area and I was thinking you were behaving badly, but you weren't. And that can happen. Mm. So both parties should get the chance to explain their motivations, get an understanding of how they've been misread maybe or misread the other person and they've innocently mishandled what they thought was truth. They didn't manage it properly. That allows this transformation, even in a thing like that, 
from living in the shadowy world, being tempted to pull that person down, you know? You think, well, we're never going to get this right, so I'm just going to continue in this bad opinion. There's a transformation through the honest disclosure and reconciliation and walking in the light, and you can start to build a person up. You can see that, wow, they're a real person. Yeah, they've got weaknesses like I have, but uh, I'm not going to judge them like that anymore. So that's when you've got purpose of goodwill. So, but false witness can operate in so many ways. A subtle form is flattery. Mm, that's an interesting one. Yeah, you can you think, oh, but I'm saying something nice. Yeah, it disguises itself as speech that builds up and edifies, but it can come from a wrong motive of self-advantage. You know, if I tell you what I think you want to hear, I, I might get some little reward that I'm after. That's taking. It's not giving. It's not loving. It's manipulating favour. And the other person gets put under obligation to respond to all the nice things. I've seen politicians <laughs> do this too, and leaders, all kinds of people. Kissing ugly babies. <laughs> well, it's the misuse of power again, isn't it? Mm. It's a form of misrepresentation. Now, there's other forms that I might as well catalogue because they exist. We talk about them like gossiping. Why gossip? Well, it's often establishing a little bit of self-righteousness. Look, you know, I wouldn't do that, you know. That can be pride, or it could be a smoke screen. Oh, yeah, I do do that, but I'd rather point out that that other person's doing it so the heat will get off me. But this is all misrepresentation. They can malign people, slander them, all for the same kinds of reasons, and that's bearing false witness. Then there's that ungracious and negative talk. It's not telling lies, it's, it's maybe saying something, but it's always negative. The person that's hearing a negative thing about another person, what do you do when you hear somebody telling you something negative about another person? Do you say, yeah, yeah, what do you say? Well, look, oh, that's your opinion, I don't know. It puts you on the spot. Yeah. And, and I think that's wrong. Because in gossip, the person gossiping often wants the other person to agree with them, don't they? And to That's participate. It. That's it, the, the triangling. Then yeah. that justifies their thing. Yeah. With, when you do have information about another person, there are kind of rules, guidelines, that I believe can apply, like a rules of thumb, like do I need to say this about that person or don't I? And sometimes I think there is a valid reason to say something or to hear something about another person. And that would be if you were to able to be part of the healing process for that person's life. Like for instance, in helping them to, to overcome some kind of a fault and you're not just using it for gossip, but you think, okay, well, thanks for telling me, I think I can help fix that. People come to me and ask, can you help so-and-so who's being caught up doing this kind of a thing? Yeah, well, okay, if, if, if you want me to, to say, let's, would you like to have a chat about something? Well, then that's helpful, it's constructive. But they, these are kind of special cases. Mm. But it's, see, gossip can be true and it can be false. But mm. even if it's true, it can be wrong. Can be wrong. That's what we're saying. And that's what we're saying. Yeah, there is, I tell you what, there's a, an interesting rule of thumb that, that I find. In any kind of thing, when you're in a conversation with people and something comes up and you think of something to say and you realise, whoops, it's a sensitive thing and it's about another person or it is something that could be said about a thing or an opinion and you just feel this sense of restraint and you can ask yourself three questions and it works for me every time. Does this need to be said? And the answer might be no. But then you can ask yourself another thing. Does this need to be said by me? Mm -hmm. Now, the answer to number one is, yes, it needs to be said. Well, yes, it needs to be said by me. And then the third question is, does this need to be said by me now? Mm. So, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said by me now? And even the first two might be right, but if it's not now, don't say it. Mm. And even that process of going through that, which would probably lead you to a much wiser decision as to whether to say something or not, the process slows you down from, <laughs> from just reacting and putting something out there that you might regret later. And you know what? You do every time. <laughs> you regret it later. And you think, I didn't have to say that. But it sounded so good to say. Mm. And interesting. I felt good about saying it. felt good about you. Or it made me get it off my chest. Mm. 
not good relation. Yeah, it all comes into it. Well, Paul, let's take it right back to the beginning. Um, Lucifer fell because of pride, but what he did in the Garden of Eden was really to misrepresent God to Eve, didn't he? And, and Adam was standing right there at the time, and that was probably the first sin recorded on earth, wasn't it? Um, even before Adam and Eve sinned. Yeah, um, he got that one on the roll, actually. He told the big lie, and that was the first lie that we ever told, and it led to death, which demonstrates the power of what's called false witness. There's a scripture in Proverbs that says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Well, this lie led to death, it literally and spiritually, because death means separation. And God said to Adam, when you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And in the day that you eat of that tree, you will die. And so he was separated, he died that day. And then it was, he died before he was a thousand years of age. Mm. He died within a thousand years, which is interesting. Remember we talked about mm. a day with the Lord is a thousand years. That's where I, I like to sometimes grab a little thing like that and say, I wonder if that fits. Mm. I wonder if that fits that scripture. Maybe it does. Mm. I don't know. But death and life were in the power of the tongue and he contacted evil. This was man coming to grips, learning evil, eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't only a lie that the serpent told Eve, it was the lie. The lie was that if man disobeyed God, he would not surely die, which is what God said. So that's bearing false witness against God because he said God is not going to give you a good deal. God's jealous of you. God knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. Wow. Well, I think just... <laughs> On that point, I think the best type of lie is one that's mixed and sprinkled with truth. So mm. to, to deceive somebody successfully, one of the best ways of doing it is to have an element of truth. And that's what Satan did in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? He, he, he kind of repeated what God had said, but in yeah. a distorted way yeah, yeah, that, that led them down to yeah. a, a different path of, yeah. of understanding. That's right. He did. Well, he played a game with Eve, really. He said, hasn't God told you not to eat of that tree? And she said, um, yeah, he told us not to eat of it, not even to touch it. Because God hadn't mentioned touching it. He just said, don't eat of it. But she felt she had to be a little bit better. She knew how to manage her little bit of truth. And then he thought, oh, I think I've got somebody here who's a little bit gullible. And then he sold the lie to her. It bears out what is a, a continual phrase in the Bible called the deceitfulness of sin. Deception is the domain of darkness and evil. And this is where Lucifer's coming from. Darkness invaded light, light got blurry, shadowy things began to happen. And all of that kind of deception, as you say, adding to the truth, the sneakiness of it, it drew people in for their own advantage. That's what happened to them. And the person who mishandles and abuses this power over another person, which was what he had over them then, they actually set themselves in a mould. If somebody lies and casts what looks like the truth about how things are, comes against the very nature of truth, and begin to live in that, they will manoeuvre themselves through life in such a way that they will never have to change. Everything that they do, they will deny and have an excuse for or misrepresent it. People will become confused. The bigger the lie, you see it in politics, the more that you can get away with the big lie, the less you have to change. And after a while, people say, well, can't ever change this person. They absolutely know they're never going to change for anybody. They'll just think up another lie. Mm. That really is, is the sadness of what darkness does. Of course, God is after getting us to be transformed. A lie is after getting us to stay in the dark. But don't you think that some people like that end up believing that they can almost create truth in, in a way? That this Yeah as they proceed through life, it probably starts out as a lie to cover up, but then they realise they, they can manipulate a situation 
to their advantage and then the truth becomes extremely relative to what they decide <laughs> that should right. be truth. Well, that's true, which means that they end up not even knowing who they really are mm. because they become a different person every time something comes up. And it, it takes great honesty and humility for a person like that to come to a knowledge of that reality. It does happen. People do get these wake-up calls. What happens is the self-deception, as you're saying. That, that is the fruit. Remember I said that scripture in Proverbs, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. That's the fruit, self-deception. And that's actually God's judgment on bearing false witness. He says, I'm going to turn you over into living in self-deception. You've chosen that. That's where you're going to live. But if a person sees themselves as they realize, so now we're looking at, let's, let's say this, this person that we just said, they've had it, they're in self-deception. If they want to get on the journey to seeing themselves as they really are, it can become incredibly painful to make that choice to say, I have to change. A person can go through such humiliation and, and feeling bad that they really decide, well, okay, I will. I will make the change. I knew a guy whose dad was an alcoholic and he caused so much trouble in the family. I mean, everything was a mess. And he was a successful person, successful businessman, had lots of stuff that alcoholism just ruined life for the kids relationally and everybody else. Now and again, as when the kids grew up, they said, Dad, you've got to go to AA. And he said, I don't need AA, you know, and he carried on. And then at some point, things went really bad. And, and his kid said to him, why don't you ring AA? And he said, all right. So he rang AA. And he said, I think I need to come to a meeting. And they said, yes, really, why? And he said, I, I think I could be an alcoholic. And they said, really? And he said, yes. So he said, um, when are your meetings? And they said, no. They said, I don't think you should come. And he said, why not? And they said, well, when you say you think you might be an alcoholic, you're not there yet. When you say, I am desperate and I need to change, can I please come to AA, then you can come. And I think, well, and that's the story that I got. Anyway, the, the guy then had a terrible incident. It was a car accident. And then said, hello, I am an alcoholic. I need to come to AA. And there was his journey. Painful, but he got it. But he wouldn't have ended up changing if he hadn't come to that point. Exactly. So it's painful, but there is a journey back, and I believe God allows that to happen to people. And people are grateful when they get a real insight into themselves, because the Bible says you'll know the truth. Jesus said that, and the truth will make you free. In all levels of relationship, you see liars as being destructive. You know, the ambitious power mongers from kids in playgrounds making it hard for other people in relationships, you know, gossiping about one another or maligning one another, political power in a nation. They've got life and death are in the power of the tongue and they eat the fruit of it. And the ultimate consequence is self-deception and they veer right off course in their lives and come to grief. Now, there is a scripture that speaks about that and it's pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. But it is talking about in the end times, and it's in Second Thessalonians in chapter 2, and it speaks about the coming of the lawless one. Some people say, right, that's the Antichrist. It doesn't say Antichrist, it just says the lawless one. So fair enough, it could be <laughs> that's the lawless one. By the way, the word Antichrist is not even mentioned in the book of Revelation. Mm. And it's not mentioned here. It's only mentioned in 1 John. Mm. Um, so the word Antichrist is thrown around a lot. It is thrown around a lot. But people would assume that it's in Revelation. That's right, but it's not. And it's not here either, but I'm, go I'm going to talk about this person <laughs> in the end times who's called the lawless one, right? The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are being lost because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Mm. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but approved of unrighteousness or wrongdoing. So that's mm. there's your fruit of it. Well, we see examples of that in the Bible where if people want to go down a certain path, God will push you down that path. Yeah. 
And it happened with Pharaoh too, where Pharaoh hardened his heart exactly. and then eventually yeah. God hardened his heart. That's a good, a good yeah. way to say it, yeah. yeah. So it's, there's a very interesting scripture where God actually sends the delusion. Yeah. If you want to believe that, it'll help you. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So well, what is the answer for someone trapped in this kind of self-deception? I think that scripture says what is needed is a love for the truth and so be saved. And, and I don't just mean going to heaven, I mean get rescued from that terrible lifestyle of living in the dark. That's what it means. Brought out of the darkness into light from a self-deceived and self-destructive life. I mean, who's happy doing that? But the love of the truth involves the love of the truth concerning the knowledge of God and the truth of his word and the truth about ourselves. I want to put this in the best package and bundle that there is. Now let's get to the God bit like we said we were going to. Mm -hmm. Many people can come to this love of the truth when they see what bad stuff is happening in their lives because they're letting it happen. Like I was talking about that fellow's dad. Right, But there's another scripture that deals with this transformation as a process that you can have a conversation with somebody whom you feel is wanting to go on the journey of self-discovery and finding truth. And they're, they're upset with their life. They're in inner conflict and they're tired of it. And they've said, what am I going to do? Or they've got problems. They may, may not say, look, I've got this problem about lying to myself. They might not say that at all. They may say, I've got this terrible problem about this anxiety and fear of, of life and I keep getting into trouble, you know, about things that I do, but I'm always making mistakes and what's going wrong? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, it says, the Lord's servant, that's anybody who wants to be there for somebody else, <laughs> with truth, must not be quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. In other words, endure. If there's stuff being said against them, they won't immediately judge things. They will endure and give a person a chance to come to the place of wanting to change. And it says, correcting those in conflict with themselves with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. There's a process. So you share with somebody. You go into that person's heart. If a person will let you into their heart and, and say, yes, I want to disclose these things that are bothering me. If you have a sense of being equipped with some, with some real handles of truth of what you can help this person with. You hold their hand and you walk around together inside that person's heart as a friend. And you talk about, hey, what's over here in your heart? Oh, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, oh, and here's another bit. Yeah, right. And you have this conversation. And as you're doing it, you're getting light. And the word of God can start to come. And that person can start to get a conviction of, wow, I'm starting to see light shining in some dark places in my heart I'd never seen before. And thanks for hanging on to my hand here. This is really helpful. And then God can say, see, I've been wanting to show you this. It just took this conversation. I see that happen. Mm. And then that person is now, they're in possession of the truth. They've now got something that they can begin responsibly. Now they're accountable because now they know. Now they've got to manage that truth with accountability and make choices. Before they couldn't, they were in the dark, self-deceived. It's a beautiful process. Mm. Well, there's great power in words, aren't there? And I yeah. think the book of James talks a lot about our responsibility to control our tongue and, yeah. and what we say. And we can speak words of life and we can speak words of death. And we've talked a lot today about the negative side of the power of our words. What about the positive side of speaking words of life? Yes, there are positive <laughs> things about it, absolutely. Well, the power of life can be seen in the tongue. Life-giving words, generally. I love life-giving words. In the book of Proverbs, I often say to, to parents, here's the book of Proverbs. Read it with your son in a simple, easy-to-read version. And I said, you will laugh, you will cry, you will discover stuff that is wisdom. And there'll be words of life. In, in Proverbs, there's some wise words like, refuse good advice and watch your plans fail. Take good counsel, watch them succeed. Good-natured conversation is always a pleasure. Now, 
They're life-giving words. And a person can look at that very simply, black and white, oh, that's helpful, thank you. And it works. And that's just the Old Testament book of Proverbs is another one that says, the right word at the right time. Beautiful. God can't stand evil scheming, but he puts words of grace and beauty on display. And then another one in Proverbs, the right word at the right time is like a custom-made piece of jewellery, and a wise friend's timely reprimand is like a gold ring slipped on your finger. These are just ordinary, simple, goodly words, you know, mm-hmm. words that are, that are life-giving. Well, and it talks about wisdom too. Yeah, wisdom. Doesn't it bring that into how we... And what you were saying before, you had your three questions that you asked yourself before you said something. Should and I say that's it? really helping to bring wisdom, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, should I say this? Should I not? But nowhere is the significance of the life-giving power of good communication seen more clearly in the fact that Jesus himself is called the Word. So if he calls himself the Word, the Logos, and he is the life-giver, I think words are important and they should be life-giving. But if we can remember that the commandments, that what we're talking about here today, Scott, it's what we've been talking about for weeks. It deals primarily with relationships. It's manifest. It's easy to see the importance of good communication in relationship. Good relationships need good communication, which needs some kind of regulation by God. That's why the commandments. They're regulating relationships and communication actually regulates relationships and the word. So God wants that communication to be good. And without true communication, there is really no true relationship. And Jesus even said to his disciples, the words that I speak to you are spirit and their life. I mentioned at the beginning that there's primarily the domain of our handling of the truth and the managing of truth regarding God, our relationship with God. This is above and beyond our relationship with one another. This has to do with the more absolute reality of the truth of who God is. That is something that we need to be willing to receive from God. He will reveal to us who he is and who we are. Mm. Well, Pontius Pilate had a unique opportunity to have a one-on-one conversation with Jesus uh, at his so-called trial, didn't he? And yeah. got to ask some very profound questions there. And, and one of them was, what is truth? But do you think Pilate ever got an answer to his question? Well, Pilate asked Jesus two questions. He first of all said, are you a king? And then later he said, what is truth? And Jesus said yes to the first question quite clearly. And it appears that Pilate believed him. And his answer to what is truth, he basically already answered because Jesus said to Pilate, let me read the scripture to you in John chapter 18. Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate says to him, what is truth? In other words, Pilate is saying, is this truth? What is truth? And Jesus had just said to him, I've come to bear witness of the truth. In other words, I am the truth. And then when Pilate asks the question, he goes out to the people because he's having this conversation with Jesus. He goes out to the Jews and he says, I find no fault in this man at all. In other words, the answer is yes. He got an answer when he realised that this man was the truth and that he could say to the people, I find no fault in him. Mm. He is your king and he is the epitome of truth. Mm. And he accepted Jesus as being who he was. So... Truth is what is. Pilate accepted Jesus for what he said. Pilate accepted Jesus for who he was. Mm. Truth is what is. What is not concealed. It was revealed. Pilate accepted it. The problem is he didn't have the character to set Jesus free. Mm. And the the rest is history. Yeah. But so as Christians, the Holy Spirit would now be the one who bears witness to the truth in us. Jesus told the disciples that it would be the Holy Spirit who reveals the truth of who Jesus is in the scriptures. And then we see in John 16, verses 13 and 14, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Yeah, that's the Spirit of Truth. That's the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful scripture from Jesus' mouth. So the Holy Spirit will take the Word of God, the Logos, the Word, that's Jesus, and that is the Word, same Word. He will take the Word of God as the Scriptures and bring that Word to life as to how Jesus is speaking to us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. They're, they're words of life. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. He takes those words and then He brings them to us in our spirit. And we have to have the written Word come to us as a revealed word. It's not just reading a fax. Oh, here's some scientific fact. Yes, I will I'll observe that. Now, it is this is speaking to me, and that's how the Holy Spirit can reveal Jesus in the truth. Because Jesus did not want people to take the word, the written word, as being like the Magna Carta. You know, here is the charter of truth. You shall not depart from it. Well, yeah, okay, not depart from it. But when Paul came and preached, he said, the words of my ministry is of the spirit, not of the letter, because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. I can read to you a whole lot of scriptures, but I'm not going to put you under the law to it. I want you to hear the Holy Spirit taking this word and making it real to you. And he was very, very conscientious about that. Because he saw other people putting people under the law to certain things. And he said, no, you've got to hear what the Holy Spirit's saying about what Jesus is revealing himself as in this word. And man, that really opens the scriptures up. Yeah. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. So even Jesus says, look, you can do a lot with the scriptures, but I want you to come into the scriptures and find me. Let the Holy Spirit show you who I am, not just get your doctrine. Yeah, and it's your not doctrine. just an academic exercise. Exactly. It's a relationship, relationship with, him. with him. That's very important. So the Holy Spirit that dwells within us was sent into the world by Jesus and the Father to act upon us. You see, God acts first. God acts upon us. It's not like we're wandering around and we're going to act upon God and we're going to dream up God. No, he's always acting upon us. He's waiting for us to respond to that action. And it's going on all the time. I think the big thing that is happening, the Holy Spirit is acting upon us, is to get us from out of the lie, the lie, that we're separated from God into the truth. And that's always happening. That conflict is within us. He's always acting on us. And we're either accepting his action or resisting his action. And you can tell within you when you're resisted. Mm. And the Holy Spirit will reveal Jesus personally to someone through an experience they can have or an encounter with God. Even if they haven't read a scripture in the Bible, there can be an experience of Jesus. Now, that can happen to somebody in any culture, any kind of personality, any personal circumstances, somebody crying out to an unknown God. Oh, God, where are you? And they've never looked at the scripture. I've heard of people all of a sudden getting a revelation of God, of Jesus. But I also believe that whatever that experience is will be verified by the word of God. Mm. It will be there in the word of God. I hope I've got time to tell this quick story. Yeah, of course. Okay, you know I'm a pharmacist. I got shot as a chemist many years ago. It was a shotgun, blew my hand to bits, it's my hand's still here, it's just won't open properly. After that event, that was a big wake-up call for me. I couldn't work, I didn't know what I was going to do. And one night I was lying in bed, my wife had gone to sleep, the light was out, and there was this visitation of evil in the light. Now my wife had taken me to church, she bought me a Bible. Mm -hmm. I, had, I had a Bible, I didn't know what to do with it. Mm. She said, I will buy you a commentary. I got that, that made it worse. I couldn't <laughs> work out what was going on. We'd been to church. I didn't quite understand what was being said, but I thought there's something here because I had a hunger for God. I was in my 30s. This visitation of evil, and I cried out to God. I, I didn't say Lord. I said, God, help me. Because hmm. you knew it wasn't a dream. Or it something. wasn't a dream. It You're was right away. Oh, absolutely. Like I was terrified. Hmm. 
And I thought, I'm going to run out of the street. And I thought, no, I thought, this is a panic attack. And, and I'm thinking, no, this is, this is worse. <laughs> this is worse. There's something really trying to get at me here. And I said to God, God, please take this away. And it went. And I thought, boy, that was easy. Ten minutes later, it was back. And then I said to God, God, if you take this away, I will serve you for the rest of my life. <laughs> I said that. I then turned the light on, opened up the Bible, which mm -hmm. was lying next to me. Didn't know how to use it. I opened up smack in the middle. My eyes fell upon Psalm 91. I read down to verse 5 and it said, I will save you from the terror that comes by night. Mm. Now, that's I'd pretty specific. Read, that was very specific. I'd never read that in the scriptures. I tried to read the Bible. I didn't know where to go from head to tail. But this was an experience, an encounter with God. Then I read the word that verified that. And I knew I was in the hands of the Lord. But he brought you to a place where he allowed that evil to yeah. come in and to be real to you. Yeah, that's right. To bring you to that place. Yeah. He allowed that to come in. Yeah. That was a, uh, a revelation. And a turning point for you personally. Turning point. Yeah, that's right. And, and have you served him for the rest of your life? Well, I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still here. There's a, a precarious scripture that I trust in. It's like gunpowder. You've got to watch how you use it. But because of that experience that I had and because I see how God has created us in these days in which we live, you know, after he has sent the Holy Spirit to go into the world to convince everybody of, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, that the Holy Spirit is acting upon every single person. Because of that, I take this scripture here, 1 John 2:27, to be a very powerful scripture. But I want to also hedge it in the terms of the fact that it also has to be borne out and verified by the word of God. So let me read it to you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. In other words, we are to have an expectation of the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus to us in our own particular personality, our own circumstance, the time frame that God has us in, speaking from out of eternity into our chronological time, the Holy Spirit can come and teach us. It's not like well, I need the Holy Spirit to teach me how to do my tax return. Now, it is when you're in a situation where you're either going to make a life-changing decision for the good or you are caught in some kind of dilemma and you're not sure what to do. You're looking for the truth of God. Rather than ring up somebody and say, oh, well, I know somebody who knows the Bible. I'll ask him what I do now. Ask God and let the Holy Spirit reveal to you what he wants to say to you. That he has access to everybody. That's what I believe. And the Holy Spirit will verify it. So the revelation then becomes Jesus, not a system of doctrines, but him. The teaching of Jesus with his life, death and resurrection obviously involves doctrine. It's got to be there. That's what we're using here, actually. But the dogmatic formulations can't take the place of the revelation in Christ. God's will will be done in and through us as revealed by the Holy Spirit and as heard and obeyed by us at that time. It's got to be that kind of a relational transaction. We can then bear true witness of God instead of bearing false witness because we say, this is God speaking to me. So I believe that that's very powerful, that we can have an expectation if we ask the Lord. The Holy Spirit will be the one that says, good question. I'm going to reveal this to you. And it can come through the word of God, but it will be personal for you rather than something you have to learn from a person. This is how you do this word of God. Now, maybe the Holy Spirit's saying, I oh, know I've got a better way for you to do this word of God in your life, in mm. your relationships, etc." That is the spirit of truth. Mm. And we've come, I believe, around to the, the full circle of not bearing false witness against our neighbour. Well, yeah, we started with don't lie and we talked about really the transformation, which is all about truth. Yeah. Isn't it? So the, It's all about truth. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's great.
Well, Paul, next week we're going to um, move on to the final commandment, commandment 10, and it's all about coveting. And I can't wait to hear about how this one relates to that one. And then we, of course, link back to commandment 1 as well, don't we? So we, do. we can talk about that next week. Yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Scott.